Good evening. Tonight is Thursday night, July 1st, 2021. Happy Canada Day. I just want to express tremendous gratitude and appreciation to Canada. Canada took us in almost 20 years ago, gave us a home, an opportunity, meaningful work, beautiful family, fantastic friends, and we are so grateful and feel privileged to be here and to celebrate Canada together with you tonight. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. I'm so grateful to every one of you for joining. It is a fantastic pleasure for me to be able to spend this time together with you. Vatikravna Benos Tzalavchad. In our Parsha, we learn that there was a man named Tzalavchad who had passed away and he left five daughters. And the daughters of Tzalavchad came to Moshe and they told Moshe the following story. Now, this is near the end of the 40 years in the desert. This is as the Jewish people are getting ready to enter the land of Israel. And they say to Moshe, Avinu meis midbar. Our father died sometime during the past 40 years when we were in the desert. Lama yigara, why should we lose out on receiving a portion of the land of Israel? Tenulanu achuzah, give us an inheritance to possess a piece of land to possess in the land of Israel. So the Torah tells us, Vayakrev Moshe es mishpatan lifnei Hashem. Now, what that Pasuk means to say is that Moshe brought their question to God because Moshe did not know the answer. God had not yet specified how a family of only daughters would inherit. So the Pasuk means to tell us that Moshe brought the question to God and God answers. The daughters of Tzalachad will inherit their father's portion in the land of Israel. Okay, that's what the verse means to say, but that's not what it says. Because the words don't say Moshe asked God, but it says, Vayakrev Moshe es mishpatan which means from the word karav, to bring close. God, Moshe brought their question close to God. What does that mean? To bring a question close to God. Here's the thing. Two people can do or say the same thing, but the meaning or significance can be very, very different. Here's one example. In the previous generation, one of the greatest Torah leaders in the world at that time, 30, 40, 50 years ago, was Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and at that time he lived in Muncie, New York. He was the elder statesman not only of Muncie, but of the entire Jewish world. And it happened that there was a Hasidic Rebbe who came to town. And this Hasidic Rebbe came to visit Rabbi Yaakov to pay his respects, to meet this great sage. 
it was the proper thing to do. A new rabbi comes to town. You go to visit the elder statesman of the community. So this Hasidic Rebbe came to visit Rabbi Yaakov at his home. And this Hasidic Rebbe, wherever he went, he went with an entourage. He went with a group of his Hasidim, his followers. And so the Rebbe came into Rabbi Yaakov's home. And then the Hasidim, this large group of uh, followers of students, crowded into the home. And they were jostling and pushing to get in the front to see exactly what was happening between their teacher, their mentor, and the great sage of Yaakov Kamenetsky. And um, Rav Yaakov was not so comfortable with the pushing and the jostling and the shoving. And so he said, I would like everybody to take a seat. And there were not enough chairs for everybody. So Rabbi Yaakov said to the students, to the Talmidim, he said, um, downstairs in the basement, they're folding chairs. Why don't you bring up chairs and everybody will be able to sit down. Menschlich, nice, proper. So one by one, each of the Hasidim went downstairs to the basement, took a folding chair and brought it back up. And the next one went down and brought it up. And Rabbi Yaakov is watching this. And finally, he cannot contain himself. So he says to them, he says, when somebody carries a chair from the basement up to the dining room, and then that person sits on the chair, that person is a schlepper. You're a schlepper. You're carrying things from downstairs to upstairs. But if each one of you would go downstairs and carry a chair upstairs and give it to the other, it's the same action, but that would be an act that is noble. That would be an act of helping another person, of kindness to another person. It's the same effort. It's the same action. But the way you're doing it, you're just a schlepper. Why not bring up the chair for your fellow and let the same action be a heroic action of kindness and compassion? Same action done by two different people can mean very different things. Near the end of 40 years in the desert, the Jews are on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And within a short period of time, two groups come to Moshe asking for land. Now, on the surface, the request of both groups is very similar. Yet, Moshe's response was very different to each of the groups. In next week's Parsha, not this Shabbos, but next Shabbos, we will learn that two tribes, the tribe of Reuven and the tribe of God, came before Moshe and they said, Yutan es ha'aretz hazos lavdecha la'achuza, please give us land here, meaning on the eastern bank of the Jordan, where they were currently, don't require us to cross over into the Jordan, to cross over the Jordan River into the land of Israel. We would like to take our share 
here, where we are now. They asked for land. Moshe, in next week's parasha, is upset with them. And he rebukes them because their request was to stay outside of the land of Israel on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. They wanted to decline the magnificent gift of the land of Israel that God was offering to them. No, we'd like our share here outside the land of Israel. And Moshe criticizes them. But in our Parsha, when the daughters of Tzalafchad come before Moshe, they say almost the same words. They say, give us land. Now, Moshe could have seen their request as purely selfish, materialistic desire. We want what's best for us. Give, give us what we want. But Moshe was able to discern that the motive of the daughters of Tzalavchad was not selfish. It was the idealistic desire to be part of settling the land of Israel, living in a holy place, and being an active part of the magnificent endeavor to create a Jewish homeland. Moshe did not know the answer to their question. But he did not just ask God. He brought their request close to God. Vayakrev Moshe es mishpatan lifnei Hashem. Moshe elevated their request and presented it to God. Brought it close to God with the highest motives behind the question. And God agreed with Moshe's understanding of their request, by Yomer Hashem el Moshe Lemor, God says to Moshe, Cain benos Tzalafcha Dovros, the daughters of Tzalafchad have spoken properly. Noson titain lehem achuzas nachala. I will give them, they will receive a share of land in the land of Israel. Now this passage demonstrates the righteousness of the daughters of Tzalafchad, yes, and also the depth of insight that Moshe had when they approached him. Because Moshe could have seen their request as base and selfish, as he did see the request of the tribe of Reuven in God in next week's Parsha. But instead, Moshe elevated the request of these five sisters and brought it close to God. So often, an action or a word can be interpreted more than one way. We should always try, when it is possible, to use Moshe's approach to the daughters of Tzalafchad to evaluate it when it could be evaluated in more than one way, to evaluate it in the most positive light. Immediately following that passage, Moshe receives word from God that his life, Moshe's life, 
is going to come to an end. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, God says to Moshe, Alei el har ha'avarim hazeh, go to the top of this mountain, ure'ei es ha'aretz, and see the land, meaning in the distance, on the other side of the Jordan River, the land of Israel, asher nasati levnei Yisrael, that I will give to the to the people of Israel. Ure'isa osa, once you see it from afar, then you will pass away. This will be the last action of your life. Moshe is going to pass away without ever achieving his lifelong dream to reach the land of Israel. As soon as Moshe hears this, his response is not exactly what we might expect or not exactly what might be the way that we would have responded. Moshe says to God, God, appoint the right person to be my successor, to lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel. Appoint for them a leader, Asher Yetzei Lifnehem, who will go before them, Vasher Yavo Lifnehem, and will come before them. Asher Yotzeim, who will take them out, Vasher Yivieim, and who will bring them in. So first, let's concentrate on what Moshe is exactly saying, because it's not quite so clear on the surface. Moshe says to God, appoint a leader who asher yetzei lifnehem va'asher yavo lifnehem, who will go out before them and who will come in before them. Asher Yotzeim, who will take them out. Va'asher Yivieim, and who will bring them in. It sounds very repetitious. What's the difference between go out before them and take them out? Or come back before them and bring them in? Seems to be the same thing. So I want to share with you the insight of one of the great medieval scholars, Rabbeinu Tam. I'm going to take it out of order with your permission. Let's start with the second phrase. Asher Yotzeim Vasher Yivieim, who will go out, who will take them out and who will bring them in, says Rabbeinatam, this is an allusion to what is mentioned later in the Torah, that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wore one of his special garments, was a Choshen, the breastplate with the 
precious stones, each one representing one of the 12 tribes of the Jewish people. And inside that breastplate was Urim Vetumim. Urim Vetumim, which literally means light and truth. It was a mystical communication device. Our rabbis explain that when there was a question of national importance, the Kohen Gadol would pose a question to God and God would answer by communicating through this Urim Vetumim that the Kohen Gadol was wearing. And then the Kohen Gadol would transmit the answer from God to the leaders of the Jewish people. In other words, what Moshe is saying to God in this phrase is, God, appoint for the people, as my successor, a leader who will seek counsel from you, who will ask you, God, what to do and follow what you, God, say to do. It's so important to have a leader who is doing the right thing, who is doing God's will. Appoint for the people a leader who will ask you, God, what to do and follow what you, God, say. Okay, that's the second phrase. What is the meaning of the first phrase? Asher yetzei lifnehem, vasher yavo lifnehem, a leader who will go out before them and come in before them. Let me start the answer with a story. In 1948, one of Israel's bloodiest battles in the War of Liberation was at a place called Castel. Many of you may know it. Many of you may, be, may have been there. It's still there. Castel is an ancient Roman fort. It's near today's city of Mevaseret Sion, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. When you see it, you immediately grasp its military importance because it overlooks and therefore controls the main route leading to Jerusalem. And in 1948, one of the bloodiest battles took place at Castel. The following story is told by Yoram Kanyek. He's an award-winning author. He was there. He was a soldier. He and other soldiers were trying to hold the fort. And all of a sudden, a bullet struck him in the eye. And he says, he wrote later in his memoir titled 1948, he wrote at that moment he realized, along with the other 10 warriors, 10 soldiers, 
who were stationed at the peak of this hill at Castel, the fort, they realized they were under mass attack by the enemy, terribly outnumbered, and that this was going to be the end for them. After a while, he wrote, he heard a call over the radio. We're coming. Backup reinforcements. Other Israeli troops were coming. 23 men under the command of Nahum Arieli arrived on the scene. And platoon commander Shimon Afasi yelled while under fire, Privates, retreat. Commanders, cover them. The officers, commanded by Nahum Arieli, stood like a human avenue on both sides of the path between charred buildings and amid an inferno of firing, and we, the privates, passed between them as if on our way to the wedding canopy. That's an example of what it means for a leader to go out before the people, not to lead from behind, to be the first. The leader goes first. The leader protects his people. The commander protects the privates. Moshe was saying to God, appoint a leader for the people who will do the right thing, who will follow your will and appoint for the people a leader who will go first into danger, whose primary mission is to protect his people. Commanders cover the privates. Okay. So that's what Moshe was asking. But let's take a step back and let's look at this passage with a wider view. Moshe's response to God telling him, this will be the end of your life. You will not fulfill your lifelong dream to enter the land of Israel. Moshe's response is to talk to God about appointing a successor, a leader. Later in the Torah, we're going to read this in just a few weeks, in the Parsha of Veshanan, we have a repetition of the same scene. And it's very different. Moshe says to the Jewish people, when God told me that I was not going to enter the land of Israel, I begged God, I pleaded with God to change his mind, to allow me to enter. I urged God and cried to God that he should rescind this harsh decree against me. 
Please, God, allow me to cross the Jordan River and enter your beautiful land of Israel. What's happening here? Same event. In our Parsha, we have one response. And in the later Parsha of Eschanan, a very different response. What's happening? What's going on? Bailey Newman provides the following explanation. She explains that Moshe, when he hears this terrible decree, this unbelievable disappointment, probably the disappointment of his lifetime, he does plead with God to change his mind. But that is only the second, later response. Moshe's first immediate response, even as he hoped to overturn the decision. His immediate response, his first response, was to ensure the well-being of his people if the decision were to stand. In essence, what Moshe is saying in our Parsha is that while I cannot enter the land of Israel, I can at least help others on their journey. Even though it seems that I, at this moment, have little to give, I can give something. I can do something. The position that I am in, as disappointed as I am, the position that I am in is not an afterthought of God. This is where I am meant to be. The truth is, we have no idea what we are capable of accomplishing or what God is conspiring to pull out of us. While we may be terribly disappointed with where we are, in fact, we could very well be in the place that God knows is the place that will draw out of us greatness. And Moshe was capable at that moment of overwhelming disappointment. He was capable of saying to God, I will elevate your name. I will spread your light, God, no matter how dark the world appears to me right now. And this is a rare and precious response. Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky explains, most of us, and if we're honest, we can recognize this. Most of us, when we're in pain, we become selfish. In the throes of darkness, in the depths of distress, we become preoccupied with ourselves. Everything is about our issues, our pain. We get strangled by our tsaros, our pain, writes Bailey Newman. But this is not what God wants from us. This is not what we are called upon to do. Moshe realizes at this moment that the children of Israel still need guidance. 
And so he did not say, I've got enough of my own problems. What he was able to say is that he was able to recognize from the depths of his darkest disappointment, he could recognize that from that moment would come the greatest gift of his being able to give to his people. If we are able to push away our own needs at that kind of a moment, we will then be capable of the ultimate kind of giving. Moshe, rather than going with his first instinct to pray to God that this decree should be rescinded, which he does later, but instead first, he chooses to see what he can do to better the situation of others. It's very, very difficult, but we too are capable of this. We too are capable of being able to say to God at a moment of disappointment and pain and challenge, God, I recognize you want me to use this pain. You want me to use this tragedy that is befalling me to infuse your world, God, with unimaginable kindness. You want me to make my life a little bit less about me and a lot more about you. When we feel ourselves getting dragged down in the darkness, instead of calling out to God first and making it about ourselves asking why, we need to try to emulate Moshe to ask what for. We need to try to be able to say to God like Moshe did, I may never get to the land of my dreams, but I can better someone else's journey. Perhaps that is the holy land to which we are truly being led. And the land we are called upon to create. But there is a question at the beginning of this passage. It's a very difficult question. It bothered me for many years. God said to Moshe, Go to the top of this mountain. And you will see the land of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. You will see it from afar. And then you will be gathered to your people. Your physical life will come to an end. What God actually means is made more explicit in a later verse. Alei Rosh God says to Moshe, go to the mountaintop. 
and see the land of Israel from afar with your eyes. Because you will not cross the Jordan River. And the question that bothered me for years is, what's the point of seeing it from afar if Moshe is not going to get to go there? Could it be that God is taunting Moshe? Look, see what you are not going to be allowed to have. That's unthinkable. That's, that's monstrous. That can't be what God is saying. So what benefit does Moshe get from seeing it before the Jewish people enter, knowing that he never will? And to make the question stronger, somehow this is connected to Moshe's superb leadership because in our parsha, the next words after God says this to Moshe, as I just pointed out to you, when God says to Moshe, I will show it to you, though you will not enter, the next verse is what we just discussed, this monumental shift of Moshe from his personal disappointment to his first reaction, which is purely selfless, to be concerned with his people, as we just discussed. What's the connection between seeing the land and being this superb leader? I think the true answer was given in a speech, one of the most famous, one of the most prescient and haunting speeches in American history. And I was close to it. This speech was delivered on April 3rd, 1968 by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in a church in Memphis, Tennessee. I was nine years old. I was a few miles away at home, unaware at that time of this speech, but I was certainly aware the next evening, April 4th, 1968. I remember very clearly, vividly, I was on the floor of my parents' bedroom watching TV in the early evening when the show was interrupted with the news that Dr. King had been shot and shortly after died just a few miles from our home in Memphis, Tennessee. The speech the night before, April 3rd, was the last speech Dr. King would ever deliver. And in retrospect, his words are even more dramatic than they first sounded that night. Dr. King was in Memphis to support sanitation workers who were on strike. And he said in that speech, we are determined to be people 
We are saying that we are God's children. We don't have to live like we are forced to live. The issue, he said, is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. The question you have to ask yourself tonight, he said, is if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination and let us move on in these powerful days, these days of challenge to make America what it ought to be. We have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And then the speech veers in a completely different direction. I imagine the people sitting there listening, wondering, why is he saying this? And the next night, everyone wondering, why did he say that last night, his last public words? He said, and then I got to Memphis and I heard about the threats against me. I heard about the threats on my life. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. This is the reason that I'm quoting this speech for you now. Because of King's use of our passage Moshe being taken to the mountaintop by God to see the land of Israel, though he will not enter it. And King said, I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And that's why God shows this to Moshe. So that at the very end of Moshe's life, Moshe can exercise one last magnificent act of leadership to encourage his beloved people and leave them with a vision of their future triumph so that he can say to the Jewish people, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain 
and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. That's why God takes Moshe to the top of the mountain. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a lovely Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.